This morning's reading is from Genesis chapter 20, verse 1, to chapter 21, verse 7, and this can be found on page 14 of the Church Bibles. From there, Abraham journeyed towards the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in a dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, what have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, what did you see that you did this thing? Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do me. At every place to which we come, say of me, he is my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you and before everyone you have vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God and God healed Abimelech and also healed his wife and his female servants so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age, at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Well, thank you to Joe and Freddie and uh, everyone who's uh, led, prayed and read 
uh, for us. If you can have, um, if you have a Bible, um, open in front of you to Genesis chapter uh, 20, and this account of Abraham and Abimelech and the birth of um, Isaac. Um, we've reached an important point in Genesis because at last the long-promised uh, son is born. And on the back of the service sheet, or inside rather, you'll see um, an outline. What I've tried to do, if you have a look at that, is I've tried to frame um, the outline in a way that uh, seeks to bring out not only what the passage says, but why it says it. So at the birth of Isaac, this child of promise, there is, and uh, you'd have heard that as the passage is read right at the end, there is laughter and uh, joy, there's laughing, and uh, uh, just as helpful a way of translating that is sheer delight would be a literal translation. And when you see that in a Bible text, it gives you confidence or expectation prayerfully that that is the response that God's word will bring um, out of us. Now that's what I've been praying for us over the past week. And uh, my week, I, I'm sure, has been like yours with its ups and downs, perhaps more downs than up. And yet, quietly over the course of this week, what has been happening in my own heart, slowly and fitfully, as God has spoken to me through this particular passage, is joy in the Lord. Perhaps I didn't communicate that joyfully. <laughs> but true joy in the Lord is, is not a superficial emotion. It can often come to us in the most difficult times. One of you wrote to me this week and said, why are you saying so much about the heart at the moment? Okay, so um, let me explain. I'm talking about heart response. So let me ask you this question. What's happening now, right now, at this moment? What's happening to me? What's happening to you? To get the answer, let me begin with another question. What is preaching? That's what we're doing. Uh, we're commanded to do that by God. It's something the church has done for 2,000 years. Uh, the context for it is when God's people are gathered in assembly. It's a listening exercise, not to me, but to God. So what's happening at this moment? Well, preaching, if I was to define it biblically, is God speaking through his word. That's why we have the Bibles uh, read and preached. God speaking through his word and the power of the Holy Spirit, offering Christ to us supernaturally. So Father, Son, and Spirit are engaged. God speaking through his word in the power of the Holy Spirit, offering Jesus. Now, if, if you're not a Christian, then Jesus is held before you as the means of salvation. As we sang, simply to the cross, I cling, nothing of myself I bring. If you are a Christian, what Jesus, what God is doing through his word and the power of the Spirit is offering Jesus for your life of faith. Now that may manifest itself in his comfort, his shepherd care, his assurance, his person inside of you, the reassurance that you are his and he is yours. The real Christ, supernaturally in his person, held out to you. So what's going on when preaching happens and in other activities 
in the life of a church is supernatural. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit at work in our lives. Now, as you reflect on a sermon, I don't know what you do when you go home. You might not completely ignore it, or you might say, what on earth was all that about? Here are two questions to ask. Did I understand what the Bible says? That's a great question. Really, what you're asking in that question is, did I understand what God is saying? It's a good question, a very important question. But here's another, just as normal, except we don't ask it often. Did I meet with Jesus Christ in a living, supernatural, real way? Was I nourished? Was I fed? Was I shepherded? Was I led? Now that should be our prayerful expectation. That is what preaching is. God speaking through his word, the Bible, and the power of the Holy Spirit offering Christ to us. What's the point of a preacher then? Well, one of the primary points of a preacher is that I know you and you know us. So we're in the, the, the grist to the mill of life together. And that means there's a dialogical element because when I look out and see you, you look and see me and Rog and Jay and others, we know stuff that's going on and therefore there's a sensitivity to that. Doesn't mean you change anything, but you just graciously bear the word into it. Well, the primary reason that God uses preachers is that they get to spend a whole week allowing God's word to impact their hearts. And then that comes through in a way that helps that to happen in our hearts. So if the content of preaching is God speaking in the power of his spirit, offering Christ supernaturally, how does that content engage with us? Well, it engages, the Bible says, our hearts. Now, when the Bible says heart, it means the whole person. It means all of you. The mind, the conscience, the will, and the loves or passions, the emotions. And when you become a Christian, you become a new person supernaturally through the indwelling person of the Holy Spirit. You just change fundamentally, supernaturally. And your whole person, your heart is uh, regenerated or made new. Don't think of the heart as this bit. Think of the heart as everything. Mind, conscience, will, loves. That comes alive to Christ. Your old self is still there, but there's a new fundamental you. The Holy Spirit indwells in you. And gives you a renewed mind and conscience and will and loves. So what is happening now and what will happen is that God will speak through his word and the power of his spirit, offering Christ. And he will engage your whole person. And if you're not a Christian, his desire is that you come alive to Christ right now, today. And if you are a Christian, his word and the power of his spirit offered in Christ will change, challenge, transform, comfort, shepherd, work with your new self, engage your mind, animate your conscience, move you in your will, and work up within you loves and passions for Christ that are greater than any other loves.
That's what's happening. Now, that might sound a big claim. It's okay for a preacher to make that claim because they stand behind all of that activity and simply expound God's word and perhaps engage on how that word has changed them. You don't talk about that. You should just see it or not. So let's pray to that end. Our loving Father, as you speak to us now through your word and the power of the Holy Spirit, offering Christ to us, may our hearts burn within us, bringing joy and delight. Our Father, we pray this for us all, conscious of those among us, in the family of God, people who are yours and they know it, but whose present circumstances make it very hard to see you, to trust you, to know what is going on. Come to them, we pray, especially. Reassure them they are yours, saved and safe. Reassure them that in all things you are working out your salvation promises for them and in them. And bring us all, gracious, loving God, to heartfelt joy and delight as we encounter the living Christ. And for those among us who are not yet Christians, will you give them a new heart, a new mind and conscience and will and loves in Christ, Will you bring salvation in amongst us today? And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So firstly, burning hearts as God speaks to us about how much we need his saving grace. Uh, Genesis as a narrative. You know, you go to a New Testament letter and it explains the logic of the gospel magnificently, like Romans. All fall short of the glory of God and need salvation by grace. But the narratives in the Bible take you into the realm of life and are so convincing and persuasive. As we find ourselves mirrored in these characters, now, let's read chapter 20, verses 1 and 2 again. From there, and there is in the heart of the land of promise, Abraham journeyed towards the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he journeyed in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. He did that because she wasn't married. Now, this is a dead repeat of what happened in chapter 12. Abram, as he was called back then, had received the Lord's promise. This is back in chapter 12. In obedience to God, a journey to the land of Canaan. Let me just read a couple of verses from chapter 12. Maybe you can flick back if you've got a Bible or just listen. I'm reading verses 10 to 13 of chapter 12. There was a famine in the land of Canaan, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. 
I mean, that's pretty shocking, and we're right to conclude it is. Abram disobeyed God when he left the land of promise and went down to Egypt. And his treatment of his wife, Sarai, was sinful, selfish, and jeopardized the promise that God had given him that with Sarah, they would have a child, and that child would be the basis of the, the promise to all humanity. So this promise is being jeopardized. But it, you may remember, if you were here around then, that, that God intervened and brought them back to the land of promise, brought Abraham, Sarah, Lot, his family back, and blessed them. Because God is kind and he's gracious. Had Abram not learned his lesson? It seems not. Here we are. Chapter 20. This time he doesn't leave the land, but he goes to the edge of it. And again he says that Sarah is not his wife. And again he jeopardizes the promise. And the reason he gives is the same. So here's verse 11 of chapter 20. Abram said, I did it. I said that she was not my wife because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place and they will kill me because of my wife. Behaved in this way. Now, 12 and here. But there's a hint in verse 13 of chapter 20 that there may have been other occasions, perhaps many. So verse 13, when God caused me to wander from my father's house, that's back at the beginning, I said to her, Sarah, I, my wife, this is the kindness you must do to me at every place to where we come, say of me, he is my brother. Now, why does he do this? Why does this man of faith who is held up in the Bible for us in Hebrews as an example, as an exemplar, God's prophet, God's example of faith, why does he do this? What, what do we make of that? Why does he do it in light of all the promises God had made to him, in light of the times God had spoken to him directly and specifically? Well, we're told he's afraid, but uh, could there also be disillusionment and discouragement? Perhaps at the behavior of his immediate family? Remember the stuff that happened with Sarah and Hagar or his wider family? Remember Lot, his wife, his daughters? Was it the destruction of the cities of Sodom that got to Abraham? He saw the burning embers? Was it the battle, the opposition? Was it the length of time of waiting? I think we get on to real ground with that. So from chapter 12, when he was given the promise of a promised child, to chapter 21 is 25 years, quarter of a century. The promise had seemed impossible back at the beginning when Abraham and Sarah were in their 70s. Surely it was absolutely impossible now. So he takes his salvation into his own hands. He does his own thing. He loses confidence in God. And yet, alongside all of that, there are many examples of wonderful times of obedient faith when he did as the Lord commanded him. Not least, when he got up and left his home and journeyed to an unknown promised land. And time and time and again, through the narrative, he did what the Lord said. And he pleaded for people, the people of Sodom. Part of God's promise to Abraham is that through his family, the nations of the earth would be blessed. So he prayed for them. So why so fickle? 
Why so compromised? One of uh, the Bible commentaries I was reading, uh, I don't think the man is, uh, uh, well, maybe he's just sinless. Uh, He said in his commentary, is it not a shock that he makes the same mistake again? I thought, no. It's not, is it? You see, these Bible characters are not there for us to, to, to sort of stand six feet above contradiction beside. They're there to just give us a realistic sense of who we are, enmeshed into this narrative of God's plan. And he's not alone. Think of the Apostle Peter, who magnificently said, you are the Christ. And in the next breath said, you will not die. And then when Peter realized that Jesus was going to die, he said, I'm going to die beside you. And then he denied him. Or the Apostle Paul, missionary to the Gentile world. Having got to chapter 7 of Romans, that magnificent explanation of the gospel concluded, wretched man that I am as a Christian. Every major figure in the Bible, Abraham, Peter, Paul, every prophet, every apostle, every believer through the period of the Old Testament before Christ, every believer since Christ, every believer, you and me, fickle, fitful, sinful, obedient, blessed, repentant, all of the above. Now, do you ever repeat sins again and again? Is the gap less than 25 years? Why is it that in spite of God's promises, I mean, we've seen the promised child born. We've seen David the king raised up. We've seen God's people brought out of Egypt. We've seen God's people brought out of Babylon. We've seen Christ come. I've had 54 Christmases to dwell on that. We've seen the cross. We've read the Gospels. We've been persuaded by watching people commit their whole lives to Christ. There is not a single promise that God made in Scripture that should have come through by now that has not. Not one. And yet we are so often fearful. And do we not doubt him through the long months, the years of waiting? Have we not ever taken matters into our own hands? And there have been highs. Highs, times of obedience, of faith, clear and persuasive and fruitful in our lives. So what do we make of all of that? Is it just a mishmash is the word. Of hopelessness, of fitfulness, of fretfulness, of knowing tempt us and it will all fall apart. This will mean that the devil will come in at the end of it and tempt us and it will all fall apart. Do we despair? Sometimes we get close to that. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 7, wretched man that I am. 
And then he slides into Romans 8. There is no condemnation. We can despair. The devil can tempt us to despair. Or we can come to our, a clear understanding of ourselves and God. We can see ourselves as God sees us. We can see ourselves as we truly are, not as we like to think we are or others say we are. Because when people look at us, well, have, at least I think, I think all of you are like super holy. Because I don't know what's going on, and you think I am. And I sometimes tell you I'm not, and you don't believe me. Coming to terms with who we truly are before God is a beautiful thing. Because if we come to terms with who we truly are before God, we come to terms with how God views us as we truly are, as his children as people he loves, as people he will bring back and back and back and back again. One of Satan's tactics is to persuade us that God will grow tired of us, that he will give up on us, that Satan will, and Satan will deceive our minds. He will seek to dull our consciences to sin. He will cause us to give up or give in. He will tempt us with sinful loves and passions. But when we realize that the heroes of faith like Abraham battled like us, and their realization of the need of God's grace you know, it's a danger in Genesis if we read these narratives and we think the only reason that God brought the child of promise against Abraham's fickleness and sin was because he will always achieve his sovereign purposes. That is true. But the narrative is constantly achieving his purposes in the realm of grace and kindness and mercy. When we realize that the heroes of faith, when they needed God's grace, that was met by an abundance of grace. And when we realize that the heroes of faith, when they did not think they needed God's grace, was met by an abundance of grace, then our hearts begin as we admit to ourselves who we truly are, constantly in need of God's grace, and constantly able to receive that grace, our hearts burn within us, Because Satan and sin are never the last words. Grace is. Now let's see how much God wants to save us and others. Now remember that his activity, God, with Abraham and Abimelech here, we're part of the same promise. These are gospel promises. Just This is the very start of them. Let's see as God speaks to us about how much he wants to save us and others. What happens with Abraham, Sarah, and Abimelech is an amazing illustration of God's grace or an amazing illustration of God's amazing grace to Abraham and his family, the family of God, but also to Abimelech and his family, the nations, outsiders at this point. God's sovereign hand is evident all the way through this. Most significantly, in that God prevents Abimelech from harming Sarah. Notice that little note in the text. He prevents him from taking her and, I guess, committing adultery, even though he was in the dark. Why is God doing that? Well, quick answer, he is so relentlessly gracious. But just pause there, and in this little narrative, you've got Abraham, the man of faith, the, the prototype church of God, if you like, in the world, and you've got the nations represented by Abimelech on the outside. And where is the sovereignty of God at work? Not just in the people of God, but just out there at work in the world. 
in the first service, there were, there were lots of people there, and, and they had, uh, over the course of the past while, spoken to me of people really on their hearts that they would come to believe in Jesus. And, and we spoke about how this particular verse is a comfort and a confidence that God is sovereign everywhere in the world, in every situation, in every person's life, graciously bringing them, some of them to faith. God is determined, he is zealous, he is passionate, he is glad to save. Let's be clear, though, God's grace is at work here in the miry world of sin, the repeated reference seven times in these verses. This is his wife, his wife, his wife, his wife, his wife. This is wrong what's going on. But God brings them back, he rescues them, he forgives them. And here's something really striking. Even when people who aren't Christians behave far better than us, And that's true of Abimelech. You could not find a better man. His moral instincts are just spot on. I can think of many times, usually at a funeral in the after thing, the tea afterwards. And uh, just to say, the Braid Hills is the best place gone right up market. And of course they chat to you and they realize that the minister sits down beside them, they kind of freak out. Oh no, what's he going to say? And I'll, I'll ask them about, do they have any background in faith? And very often they'll say, the church is terrible. And the church is messed up. Or somebody I knew who was a Christian did this and it's turned me away. That's so common. And it's so real and it's so true. But it's not an excuse because the church is made up of messed up sinners. And you say to them, well, the decision is between you and Jesus Christ. And you say, well, okay. And there often is no answer at that point. There's certainly no dismissiveness there. Abraham's prayer at the end of this chapter is very moving. Verses 17 and 18, he speaks to God for these people. It is a prayer of uh, mission. Now, I wonder as we approach uh, Christmas uh, time, uh, is to stop pretending that we're not approaching it would be a good thing, because we are. And as Christians, let's not be humbugs. It's a great time. To pause and reflect how much God wants to save us. We'll come to that in a minute. The relentless grace of God to bring Jesus. How kind he is to us. How thrilled he will be to remind us once again of the glorious promises in him that he's got us safe through another year with our fickleness, our obedience, the highs and the lows, that he's not vindictive, that he loves us, that he shepherds us, 
And to reflect too for a moment on all these people who will flock into these Kyle services. That God is sovereign in all their lives. And that this Christmas time, perhaps, many will give their lives to Christ. Thirdly, God speaks to us about how he always keeps his promises for us and in us. Uh, at last, the promised son Isaac is born. We'll get to the promised son in a moment, under point four, but let's just focus on God always keeps his promises. So uh, verses uh, one and two, if you wrote this in a National 5 essay, you would get minus 10 for repetition. The Lord visited Sarah, and we read it, as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had said, and Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Now just pause at our point in salvation history and listen to the promises. This is big picture stuff. And is there anything that hasn't been fulfilled that should have been? So Genesis 3, the seed promised. Between Genesis 3 and 12, the relentlessness of human rebellion. God's promise to Abraham. The constant setbacks of human sin from believers and unbelievers. The child is born. Here it is. Isaac is born. And we'll trace his life. Then the exile in Egypt. Then David. Then the exile in Babylon. The partial restoration. Four centuries of waiting. Not 25 years. Eight times 25 years. 16 times 25 years. Ages. The coming of Christ, a new intensity of opposition, the death, resurrection, coronation of Christ, the age of the church, the persecuted church. We were uh, talking on Tuesday about East Asia, a particular country where we have partners. It's harder than it's been for many, many years there. And yet, the last five years have seen the greatest pulse of expansion in the church. It's unstoppable, the progress of Christ's message in the world. And he will come again. He keeps his promises because he's true to his word and he keeps his promises because he is God and more powerful than anything or anyone who opposes his promises. He will prevail. And to be in God's family is to be in the realm of salvation and all blessings in the end. But in the personal of our lives, God saves us and brings us home to glory. He will never leave us nor forsake us. Some of you here have been Christians for a year, or five years, or 10 years, or 25 years. For me, nearly 50 years. For others, much longer. And the story of our lives is fickleness and fitfulness, and obedience and fruitfulness. Ups and downs, the same old things, and yet the consistency of God's grace and his kindness. What's the point of it all? What's the point of God's grace to save us? Yes, but in verses 3 and 4 of chapter 21, there's just a reminder that God's purpose for us is to lead us into the obedience of faith. And if we have fallen away, to lead us back to the obedience of faith. So what is the obedience of faith in verses 3 and 4? Abraham called the name of his son 
who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him Isaac, as God had commanded. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God has commanded. Everything in our lives woven into a purpose. Now, one of the hardest things for us as Christians is to hear a text like all things work together for the good of those who love him in a way that doesn't bounce off our hearts. And if we're in the middle of a difficult time, we just cannot hear that. doesn't mean to say it's not true. But when you study and read the life of a man like Abraham, you can see it not as a principle or a text, but as it works out in a life. God will never give up on us. And, of course, our passage resolves in the birth of the promised son, whose life, as we will see, foreshadows the birth of the child of promise, the Lord Jesus. And we'll learn as we look at Abraham's dealings with Isaac and how God uses Isaac, we'll learn about Christ. And the passage resolves, and this is, my prayer for us with uh, Sarah uh, laughing or being surrounded by spontaneous joy. That's what the text is saying. We will, and as we pray that this Christmas time, we will reflect on how good God is to us. And as we pray for those whom we would love to come to faith, that God is sovereign in their lives. I wonder too, and perhaps I speak more to myself and to some of you. Let's not let the devil persuade us to be joyless at Christmas. Let's pray instead that he will fill us and we're not talking superficial joy. We're talking joy in circumstances that belie the very possibility. Joy in Jesus. Let's pray that when people come in to these different services and as we meet people, not least in our own families, the blessing of a husband's joy to their wife or a child's joy in Christ to their parents, and to one another as Christians, and to those who are not yet Christians, let's exhibit delight and joy in Jesus and all he means to us. Let our hearts burn, our minds, our consciences, our wills, our loves, because we know Jesus. Let's pray.
Lord Jesus, we thank you for Genesis, for what it's teaching us about the life of faith and the purposes of God and your grace and your mercy and your kindness and your heart for mission. And Lord, our prayer is that over this Christmas season, as it rushes upon us, as Christians, we will reflect with wonder and praise how wonderful it is to know Christ, that we will pray with earnestness and with confidence, with missionary hearts for people to come to know him, trusting that you are sovereignly at work in their lives. And that above all, through the circumstances of our life, as we reflect on Abraham, that we will pause and find in this season of Advent real joy and delight in Christ coming into our hearts, welling up within us and welling up out and through us to those around us. We pray that many people will be touched by Christ convicted and converted and rendered safe this Christmas time across the world and in this country and in this community and within our families. And we pray that earnestly and in the name of Jesus. Amen.